When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, hey, where do you keep your axes and guns? I'm Jonathan Strickland. I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. <laughs> and I'm Joe McCormick. That was a reference to something that happened off mic. Anyway, today we wanted to talk about mining, really. You know, the future of mining. Mining, so pickaxes, and uh, I had to bring axes back. Pickaxes yeah. and, yeah, yeah, and shovels and, and, and lasers. And seven dwarves who uh-huh. follow Snow White around. No, we're actually talking maybe lasers. We're talking about space mining. Space mining. Space mining. A- mining asteroids, to be perfectly uh, uh, specific. And the reason why we're talking about this is, well, I mean, we've actually brought it up on several episodes of forward thinking yeah we referenced it in the uh, podcast in the video about water yeah we talked about we talked about it a little bit with uh, colonization as well and some mm-hmm. more other space exploration 
Uh, yeah, and so it it came up often enough that we were like, well, let's just dive in, yeah. do the whole thing, right? And and the reason why we would even look at mining asteroids in the first place, well, a couple of reasons, right? There's one is that if we're going to really focus on space exploration beyond just going to the moon, I say just going to the moon, like that's no big deal, <laughs> but beyond beyond our immediate surroundings, uh, it behooves us to look at the potential for using other sources of uh, thing, everything from fuel to water to, to materials to actually build stuff, whether it's a space station or a space colony or even another spacecraft. Uh, it, it helps if we can get that material somewhere other than just from Earth because moving stuff from Earth to space is not easy. It's, it's not really economical. I mean, it costs, what, $10,000 a pound to, to put stuff in space? Yeah, that's the old NASA estimate is that across the the lifespan of the space program, it costs generally about $10,000 a pound to take stuff up into low Earth, or, low Earth orbit, Which I is believe. slightly more expensive than the tuna I like to buy at the local <laughs> grocery store. Uh, it's pretty crazy. Now, keep in mind that it's entirely possible that this... Uh, asteroid mining operation won't turn out to be economical. We got to say that all of this is tentative right now. Sure, it's yeah. It's just based on estimates and ideas of what might work. Nobody's right. been able to do it yet, of right, course. Right, right. And and the 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 possibility also of of saving the environment a little bit of grief from from, you know, not having to drill into our own earth for these kind of resources mm-hmm. is is hypothetically groovy. And there's also the possibility that certain elements that are extremely rare on earth could be slightly less rare when you take the take into account all the asteroids out there. So there's there's a chance that we could end up getting material that we would actually use back here on Earth from asteroids. Yeah, in both of the ways that this could be economically feasible, it's based on sort of the locality of economics. Sure. Meaning that, uh, so we could go out to asteroids to get stuff that's extremely rare on Earth, so rare that it's uh, incredibly valuable, and... These would be, for example, uh, platinum group metals. Right. Um, Very useful in lots of different applications beyond just that looks shiny and pretty. Mm-hmm. So extremely valuable here because of local rarity. But mm-hmm. it's, of course, on the scale of the universe, not meaningfully scarce at all. Right. Think. I, I think everything uh, on the scale of the universe tends to be fairly <laughs> plentiful by our standards. Uh, and then, of course, the other half of that is that there are things that might not be all that valuable here on Earth, but they're tremendously valuable in space. Right. But two people who are currently in space and trying to do stuff there. Right, right, um, sure. So it goes both ways. But in each case, the reason it would make sense economically is because of local scarcity, not sure. total scarcity. Right. For example, one of the, the first things that a lot of companies that are, well, the, the two major companies that have announced that they are seriously looking into asteroid mining as an actual business, uh, the thing that both of them are really focusing on early on is water. That's right. Which water is not something that we would necessarily want to or need to bring back to Earth. The, <laughs> the, the, the problem with water on Earth, like fresh drinking water on Earth, is again a locality issue, not an, a quantity issue as of right now. Um, some of it, well, not just locality, but also what state it is in, whether it's solid or not. 
Yeah, so if you're living in, say, a very parched desert region, the problem is getting local clean water. And that's actually the same problem that astronauts face. Right. Um, space is like a desert. Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, you don't really <laughs> come by. Not a rainfall. Many, exactly. Very little. <laughs> uh, if you look up at the International Space Station, they have to just meticulously recycle every molecule of water and and they still can't do it perfectly. Oh, right, you know, they, they they've got it some. they've got it up to like a 95% success rate or recovery rate I think, but but even even that even 5% is, you know. Yeah, over a long haul mm-hmm. is eventually you, you run out when yeah. it's something that humans need, you know. And and this is this is something so like there they are trained to be super efficient with water. Um imagine if you were trying to start a colony or you know, even worse, like trying to manufacture something in space. I mean, in these cases, we use tons of water. Right. We're not even aware of how much water we just waste. Sure. It would, you know, drive these ISS astronauts crazy. Well, and on top of that, water itself is made up of hydrogen and oxygen, which are two ingredients for rocket fuel. If you want to create a propellant of some sort, then uh, you could actually manufacture propellant gathered from water that you're getting uh, out of asteroids. That's great because the more propellant you need, the heavier your rocket's going to be when you're launching it from Earth. The heavier it's going to be, the more rocket... You know, it becomes this cycle where you have to start doing these complicated calculations to figure out exactly how big your your rocket needs to be in order to get everything you want to get up into space and to its final destination. Right, but if you can come across water in space, you can separate water into its constituent elements, which are hydrogen and oxygen, exactly. which are the ingredients you need to make uh, rocket propellant. Right, and then you, you're able to... to at least change your considerations when you're actually at ground level. Uh, I mean, also you're talking about the ability to do manufacturing and, and, and construction out in space. These are all things that are going to be invaluable in the future. But then there's also the elements that are getting increasingly rare on Earth that we are relying upon in lots of manufacturing, uh, things like gold and platinum, that we could, in theory, run out of a usable supply within a few decades. So it's it's important stuff. Yeah, we're actually um so I think a lot of people don't even know like what do you really use platinum for? Well, right? uh one yeah. one of the big things I know now is the auto industry. Sure. It, yeah. It's huge there because of catalytic converters, it's right? It's it's also very uh popular in fuel cells. It's used in fuel cell membranes. It's part of a catalyst. You, when you get mm-hmm. platinum down to the nanoparticle size, it has this uh uh catalyst effect on the the reactions that you get in fuel cells where you have hydrogen on one side oxygen on the other the membrane allows hydrogen ions to pass through but not the electrons the electrons go and do work through a circuit then they recombine with the hydrogen and oxygen on the other side the output you get is electricity heat and water so the important part there is that membrane and the the platinum isn't uh you know, without the catalyst there, this reaction really doesn't take place in a, on an efficient level to make a fuel cell useful at all. Mm-hmm. So that's another important uh, use of platinum. Yeah, platinum is platinum and platinum group metals are actually generally really useful as an oxidization catalyst in like the production of chemicals mm-hmm. on an industrial level. So um, you can use like platinum or platinum rhodium alloy catalysts. Uh, to, to catalyze a, an oxidation of ammonia, and that creates nitric oxide. Um, and you use nitric oxide to make you know, fertilizer or explosives 
or nitric acid that we'd use in other things. Right. And quite a bit of the these materials that we're talking about, actually, the reason why they're on Earth in the first place is because of ancient asteroid collisions. We're talking about back when the Earth was cooling, partially because the Earth and the asteroids that uh, collided with the Earth are all pretty much made up of the same stuff. And so a lot of the uh, these deposits came from originally, if you go back a couple of few billion years, uh, came from asteroid impacts. So, you know, it's not a big leap to say, let's go back out there and look for more. Um, well, I don't know. I would say it is a big leap. But it's not an un, uh, unreasonable. I yeah. think it's not a big leap uh, intellectually. When you're talking about the practicality, yes, <laughs> getting hugely. It, getting it yes. done is hard. Yes. The idea of this is where we should look makes sense. The idea of this is how we're going to do it, that's a that's a different conversation. Yeah. So one of the questions we'd want to ask is uh, how much is out there? And part of the problem right now is we don't really know. We We sort of have to guess. And the only way we would really end up knowing for sure is to follow through with some of these survey missions to get up close on these asteroids and and do some more serious analysis. Right. But right, uh, because there's a there's a lot of asteroids out there, both in the main belt and um uh the the near near Earth asteroids. Yeah. But uh, yeah, and and I think it's the near Earth asteroids that people are really focused on right now because the main belt is. Far Pretty away. far out, yeah. Um, but so there are some estimates out there that people have put forward, like uh, one of the people from Deep Space Industries, which is one of the companies we're going to talk about. Uh, they estimated that uh, you remember that asteroid that flew by Earth back in February of 2013. That was uh, 2012 DA14. Yeah, mm-hmm. that was the one that coincided with the uh, meteorite that struck Russia, right? Yeah, that's right. Uh, the, the two, by the way. Totally not connected to each other. Just want to get that out of the way. Yeah, yes. completely coincidental. As far coincidental. as we know, as far as the government has told us. Joe, get Ben and Matt in yeah, here. You can go to stuff they don't <laughs> want you to know and pedal that around. Okay. So, uh, but so this thing is very small, just about 150 feet wide and you know, tiny. T- tiny um, in the grand scheme of things, yes. Yeah. Um, but what they estimated is that, well, I mean, something like this could feasibly yield about 65 billion in recoverable water and 130 billion, uh, these are dollars, 130, 65 billion dollars and 130 billion dollars in recoverable metals. And that's huge. Yeah. Um, they, so if we want to look a little bit bigger, Peter Diamandis, who's one of the people involved in planetary resources, has said that basically a, a single, 500 meter platinum rich asteroid uh, could be more platinum than we have ever mined in all of human history. Right. Yeah. Now, of course, that presumes that there is such an asteroid that is identifiable and reachable by us. But, that, you know, when you've got like 9,000 near Earth asteroids and maybe a thousand more discovered every single year, and you've got some odds of at least finding stuff that will be useful. The question is whether, you know, how expensive is it going to be to get there to then get the material and then to do whatever it is you plan on doing with it, selling it off to whomever? Is it, does it make economic sense? Yeah. So we know there's, there's probably good stuff out there. And we, it would probably be really useful for us. How would we actually get it? What, what's the mission outline that these people have proposed? Well, let me let me talk about planetary resources uh, specifically for that because uh, they they've kind of laid out their plan probably 
a little more in depth than uh, than the deep space industries, as far as I can tell. Now, I've, I've read about deep space industries approach as well, but it it's it's a little more vaguely defined, at least the information I found. Uh, so here's what planetary resources say. Uh, first of all, they, their mission is to apply commercial innovative techniques to explore space. So they're looking at this as beyond just asteroid mining. That's part of their mission. But they also want, according to their mission, to uh, expand our scientific knowledge about our solar system and to uh, to really find a, a, a profitable way of doing that. Their uh, backers include Google's founders or a couple of Google's founders. Um, and then they, they fir- their first plan is to develop a low-cost robotic spacecraft that's designed to explore asteroids. And the first launch is planned for 2015. And the name of that is the ARCID-100. This is technically a space telescope, and it's meant to be used in low-Earth orbit. Uh, do you guys know where the name comes from? It's uh, from it's a Star Wars reference. It's yeah. from a uh, um, arcade in- industries. Arcade industries. Industries. Yes. Uh, which is a uh, droid manufacturer. Yes, that is correct. Universe. I did not know that. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's their. Who? Do, which droids do they make? Uh, they only make uh, the droids that break down in the the series. They're not necessarily. The, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I honestly I couldn't tell you. I I knew that much, and beyond that, you know. You're getting a little too deep into the Star Wars lore for me to be able to follow along. Uh, the so that's the telescope. the 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 purpose of the telescope, of course, is to not only explore our solar system to to look into our solar system in greater detail, but also to identify potential asteroids for us to look into further. But it's not designed to actually get to the asteroid and look at it. Right, and it's actually not extremely well-suited to looking for asteroids, um, uh, according to Phil Plate of Bad Astronomy, at any rate. Um, yeah. Uh, it's, it's, it's a 20-centimeter or 8-inch uh, telescope, and um, uh, on, on a pretty tiny little body, about the size of a human head, if that's if that's a good reference for, <laughs> for satellite size. It, it does, however, weigh more than a human head. It's 15 <laughs> kilograms. I mean, not that I've, you know, done comparisons or anything. Don't not- look in my bag. <laughs> um, at any rate, yeah, yeah, uh, it, it would be it would be better suited for for getting shots of, say, a, a bright nebula or galaxies or something like that. Something like that, a little bit further, planets, Earth. Earth. There's going to be a lot of pictures of Earth. It's going to be difficult to to really hone it in on something as as close by and quick moving as an asteroid I think. Yeah. Uh it, it does raise some questions. Their their next phase in their plan is to design the Arcid 200, also known as the Interceptor. <laughs> That's actually what they call it. And uh in this case what they would do is they take that basic Arcid 100 design and they would tweak it a bit and the, including adding propulsion to it and some more instrumentation uh designed specifically to perform flyby observations of nearby asteroids. So these would actually travel out to near-Earth asteroids and get a closer look. Uh, It may be that we end up identifying the asteroids using other instrumentation and then just aim the ARCID-200 so that it's on an intercept path, not that, you know, they detect it and then move to it. Um, Yeah, it sounds like along the, and and I know we're not done yet, uh, but it sounds like along the timeline, what's sort of going on is that there's a slow narrowing down of candidates. Yes. Like you'd use the first series telescope to to scope out a wide range of possible candidates. You'd basically say what's coming near here and what's going to be the easiest to intercept, right? Mm -hmm. And And then once you be able to get 
closer and look with a more powerful or a uh, or a closer view, you would actually start to say, okay, which are the ones that have the things we need? You might even argue that the first step is not even to find candidates at all. It's really to develop the basic technology for the space telescope in a privatized way. And then once we are able to have the propulsion element added in, because one of the things that Planetary Resources talks about is that while it's working on one stage of this, it's in research and development for the other stages. So mm-hmm. you, the build-out time for the first stage gives them more research and development time for stages two and three and so on. Right. And furthermore, to just drive excitement and uh, and sponsorship, hopefully, for the further levels. You know, it, it's the, the 100 was a Kickstarter-funded mission. It was a $1 million Kickstarter that, that ended up earning um, – uh, uh, one point five million, something a little bit above that. Yeah, and um, I know a guy who backed that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I it seemed I remember reading about it. It was pretty cool. The crowdfunded telescope because they would they had like a sort of educational initiative where if your group donated, I think you could you could get time to aim the telescope yourself. Yeah, and stuff. they they had they had two cute things. They had one which is which is a little video screen on the outside of the satellite um, with a with a camera that would take a picture of any image that you gave them. It could be Grumpy Cat and with the Earth in the background as like a little planetary selfie yeah. for, for motivation. But they, and then and then also they, they sold time or, or would donate time from the main uh, telescope cameras to point at whatever your research or classroom wanted to look at. Right. So you could actually, if you wanted to, you could uh, contribute at a certain level and then on your behalf that or your time would actually go to a school or scientific uh, mm-hmm. research facility it wasn't wasn't necessarily you that yeah. got to dictate it although if you donated at a higher level you could um there were 1978 backers who uh who put in at the amount for uh, the 5 minutes of time for students or for science which i calculated at being 9890 minutes or 165 hours or about 7 days worth of telescope time total i mean that's added up. It wouldn't actually go for seven. They wouldn't say, all right, for the first seven days, we're right. just doing this. It would actually be spaced out over its its initial days, I would imagine. But anyway, that that's the ARCID-100. The 200, very similar to it, it's got the propulsion. It allows it to fly to an asteroid and get a closer look. Then you have the ARCID-300, which, you know, the, the 200 was the interceptor. The 300 was the rendezvous prospector. So it just it really just kind of combines two Western tropes into one. Anyway, so you got the uh, the rendezvous prospector, which was an augmented interceptor. So it would also have deep space laser communication software and uh, hardware on it to allow it to communicate back into Earth. And was designed to travel to asteroids that are further away from Earth because the interceptor is mainly focusing at asteroids that are passing between Earth and the moon. Uh, the rendezvous prospector can go further out and uh, it would actually enter the orbit of an asteroid to collect data on them, including the asteroid's density, shape, composition, size, rotation, that kind of thing. And you would actually have multiple devices focus on the same asteroid in order to distribute mission risk. So if one failed, you'd still have others that were uh, looking at this asteroid. Because if you're talking about a, a potential mining opportunity, you want to have as cl- you know you you want to try and guarantee success as much as you can. And then finally, the last phase is to develop means of harvesting and delivering the resources on asteroids to space-based and terrestrial customers. 
now this is the most vaguely defined of their steps because we frankly don't know how we would hmm. do it yet. It's uh, the part stall. Right. Yeah. And, and the, their point is that during the time where they're developing these other phases that they've already laid out, they will be working on what would be the best approach at doing this. And how would we do it? And again, they would initially focus on water-rich asteroids to get both water and its component elements for propulsion. Uh, but there would be no firm plans on how recovery would take place other than the teams are researching it right now. Part of it seems like kind of a smart business model to start with water because – as you mine water, you'd also be, I would imagine, sort of developing your customer base <laughs> because the more water you can produce in space, the easier it is for people to sustain activity in space. Yeah. Um, so you can get more people up there who need more of what you're creating. It's also a great – I mean I would imagine – I don't know. I honestly don't know what would be the quote-unquote easiest – resource to mine on an asteroid, but I would imagine water would be way up there yeah, compared and to and some other Especially others. in terms of processing, right. I would think. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, that's one of the big questions is, uh, okay, so imagine you get to an asteroid, and we can talk uh, more in a minute about where this would happen and stuff like that, because that's a big question too. But what, wherever the asteroid is, imagine you're there and you want to mine it. So you dig up some rocks, and these rocks have some significant platinum content how do you get it out yeah you might have to use some sort of either a chemical approach to try and leach it out or yeah. you know there's some discussion about using lasers to uh to vaporize any material that is not what whatever it is you're going for that well, kind of stuff yeah whatever it is you're talking about what sounds like a a fairly uh hardware intensive kind of process where mm. you'd need lots of stuff there doing its job um, and all of our experience with it, I'm not saying it can't be done, of course. All of our experience with this so far is on Earth, where you can, you know, you can just like burn ore and smelt mm -hmm. it off. And doing um, this in microgravity, um, and without, without an air supply to make combustion happen. Right. Yeah. Be difficult. I mean, I definitely, never mind. I was going to make an air supply joke, but I'm going to just walk away from that. <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah. I no, admire I your restraint. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I, it was right on the cusp. Uh, no, I wanted to talk a little bit about the, other big company, the Deep Space Industries approach, um, and what they think they are going, to, how the, how they're approaching this this same task. Right. They've got they've got they've got three steps instead of that four, but it's basically running along the the same the same projected not timeline, but but just scope of, of projects. Sure. Um, you've got a they're they're thinking about sending um, uh, prospecting probes out around 2015. These these are calling fireflies. Um, you can't take <laughs> taking advantage of uh, <laughs> of some of our our, our beloved brown coats. So, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm sure. Yeah, that that might have a little tiny bit of something to do with it. It could be an extreme coincidence. Maybe they haven't seen television in the past twenty years. These are th these are small small little things um, that would be launched a uh, piggyback with with larger commercial satellites, thereby cutting down on cost um, and and are really reconnaissance missions. Again, just just going out with telescopes and looking for the kinds of things that they might later start to to um, reach out to with sample return missions called dragonflies. Um, they they don't have a projected timeline for this, but they're thinking about the third step in 2020, so I guess that would be Somewhere soon. between 2015 and 2020. I, I had read at one point, uh, according to one article, that 
the optimistic approach was that Dragonflies would be launching a year after they had started launching Fireflies. So that would be 2016. Uh, it seems really, really optimistic to have something that could uh, intercept an asteroid, take a sample, and come back reliably. But I mean, not outside the realm of possibility. It's just very. It's a an accelerated timeline. To be fair, um, the the planetary resources also plans on ha- launching the first Arcid 100 in 2015. So the timelines here are very similar. Those dragonflies would also be pretty small. They're they're using CubeSat, uh, uh, Cube satellites. These are little one liter cube satellite techs that are. Uh, it's it's kind of the Raspberry Pi of of satellite, and cool. I <laughs> and I and I kind of adore this entire concept. Um, and uh, and then the third step uh, again in 2020 would hy- hypothetically be the harvesters. Um, mm. So uh, uh, yeah, all, that, all of this, I feel like, is ranging deeply into Halo terms. Yeah, but, when when I read the term microgravity foundry, I was like, really? <laughs> right, right. So, so this cool. is once once they've got these harvesters out there working on their asteroids, they've they've got plans for propellant refineries and microgravity foundries, um, and uh, they're thinking about trying to use uh, new new spins on three D printing. To turn any any materials that they get into new usable metal, parts, usable parts, <clears throat> yeah. right, right, and they they've got some apparently patent pending technologies that um, help metal based three D printing happen better. Yeah, I read something about that where it was like so. There's some idea where you just have a machine where it's got a, a hopper or something, and you just throw rocks that have like nickel content into them, and they smash them up and somehow process that into the uh, what do you call the material the 3D printer prints in? I don't know. The, uh, well, essentially, what what would be ink in a right, metal printer? Right, at, so, at the metal point, smelt, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah and so that would just be one whole direct line process of, of <laughs> taking the ore and turning it into a product at the end of 3D printer. It's interesting. Printer. I wonder how that works in microgravity. I mean, that's that adds a whole new level of complexity to the 3D printing process, most of which end up, Printing, you know, based taking relying upon Earth's gravity, right? Down the, on the fact down the that everything and, falls at what is it, nine point eight yeah. meters per second towards <laughs> per second. Yeah, um, I, I would think maybe if they're printing in metals, they might be able to use magnets to some extent. Huh. Depends uh, on if it's a ferrous material, but yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You know, it's interesting. I don't know. I honestly don't know the answer to that because I don't think anyone's built a three D printer uh, microgravity foundry yet. <laughs> They they have not. They, as I said, are working on the patent process. And I think I feel like Deep Space Industries is a little bit more um, overtly economically minded than uh, than planetary. They're um, they're they're funding current operations by, you know, the normal sponsorship investment kind of stuff. But they're playing uh, planning on selling fuel that they get from the water from asteroids to satellites and space stations and, and other commercial propositions. So they're just going to become the, the interplanetary space uh, gas station. Yeah. Okay. That not, makes sense. not a bad idea. No. I mean, it, it's a growth industry. Yeah. There's nothing but wide open space there. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I may, I make jokes, but these are things that are going to be necessary. We need to have a space infrastructure, including a fuel infrastructure, if we want this future of space exploration and colonization to become a reality. It's funny how quick some people are, at least some people that I've read, uh, just to, ah, this is impossible. You know? Yeah. 
There's some some grouchy people talking well, about this. You know, I think there were plenty of people who said it was impossible to land someone on the moon and get them back to Earth safely. I'm sure there mm. were plenty of people who said that. The thing is that I I love seeing an engineer when you tell an engineer that something's impossible because that just solidifies the determination to prove you wrong. Um, oh, I human mean, ingenuity has proven time and time again that that the impossible is just is really possible. You just need the right amount of time and energy and money to go into it for it to become that way. Yeah, telling a good engineer that uh, something like this is impossible is like putting a you know plate of something up on a high counter and thinking the dog will never find a way to reach this. <laughs> yes. You're or just, furthermore, my enterprising children. Yeah. Or furthermore, yeah. yeah. I can my go in the other room. Or, and, yeah. right. <laughs> I can leave this unattended for five minutes. Nothing will go wrong. Yeah, uh, it's... It, I... I I certainly wouldn't say it's impossible. I think that the timelines we've discussed are very optimistic. I'm not even saying that that's impossible, but uh, I will be pleasantly surprised if they are able to meet those timelines, uh, both companies, Planetary Resources and Deep Space Industries. And uh, I mean, either way, I mean, if they do that, it's a huge boon for science. Uh, even if they fail, I think it's a huge huge win for science. Well, yeah. I mean, if anything else, it's, it's showing, again, that these sort of endeavors really increase the excitement around science. There is some danger, at least some people have, have, have said that there could be some danger, that if these projects fail, it could end up setting people back a bit, because people will be like, I supported this thing, and I was all... I'm not going to invest in another one. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Although at least with in these cases, it's all unmanned probes. Yeah. Um, and I think that that is really the best possible idea right now for space exploration and asteroid exploration and mining operation. And right, we don't. Yeah. We'll we'll talk about some uh, manned mining operations, fictional ones anyway, in our our next podcast. Yes, we will. Well, th- that is one thing that. I hate to hurt people's feelings because I'm sure when you say asteroid mining, what they're imagining is people in spacesuits with pickaxes, I guess, and uh-huh. Bruce, Bruce Willis away. or the Seven Dwarves or whatever you or, know up or there. Skyrim in space. I've been playing a lot of Skyrim again recently, <laughs> just mining the heck out of <laughs> or, all the iron you know, ore. Mine, Minecraft. I yeah. You know, there you go. Minecraft sure. in space. Sure. What, You're it, just looking at me with dead eyes, Joe. I've, I've never played this game. So what do you just like hit rocks? There's you can never mind. you can also never hit mind. rocks. Okay, um, okay. So <laughs> I I think we should talk about um, imagine all this works. Okay, and we can set down on asteroids. We can sample them. We can figure out which ones have the resources we want. What's the best way to get it? Um, some people have talked about. Well, okay, I guess you'd um, you'd send something out to an asteroid, and then it would collect raw materials, and then uh, and then launch off and and right. bring it to wherever yeah. it's useful. Or uh, other people have talked about simply moving very small asteroids that you'd create some kind of capture vehicle mm-hmm. that would harness the entire thing and bring it into orbit of the Earth or say the Moon which would make it a lot easier for us to access it, to get to it and from it with the return materials. Sure. Oh, right. That's Deep Space Industries' plan is to um, to harness some near-Earth asteroids and, and bring them back to to either um, yeah either Earth, Moon, or or that fun-in-between period that I forget the technical term for that's, uh, <laughs> that, that, that's pretty much balanced by the gravities of the two. Right. So moving an asteroid could be complicated in the sense of you could have some sort of capture vehicle that is 
either physically bringing the asteroid on or is somehow towing it. Uh, there's there I've seen proposals where you would put essentially thrusters on the asteroid itself and turn the asteroid into a spacecraft of sorts and mm-hmm. that you're just using the thrusters to maneuver it into wherever whichever orbit you need. Um, there's the concept of gravity towing, although I don't think that would necessarily work because you're talking about a very, very slow process with gravity towing. It's usually more in line with uh, with moving an asteroid so it takes a different path rather than actually pulling it to a specific destination. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's some safety concerns here, not just for the probes, but for Earth itself. Um, Deep Space Industries, at any rate, would only be, says that they would only be targeting, you know, less than 30 meter uh, in diameter asteroids because those would be small enough that if they, yeah, you know, lost control of the asteroid and it plummeted into the Earth, it would really just plummet into the atmosphere and burn up. Yeah, it would just, depending upon what it's made of, if it's 30 meters, possibly destroy a small town, maybe a <laughs> medium sized city. At any rate, they, they say that there might be, um, that there's about 1,100 of these that they have already looked at and targeted and said, hey, that one could work. Uh, it's maybe 15 years off right now, but. This is part of the problem is that a lot of these near Earth asteroids are on, you know, 15 or 20 year orbit cycles that only come close enough to Earth to be useful once every so often. So right, right. This is the challenge, a challenge aside from space. Uh, w- one distinction we should make, and we sort of made it earlier, but I guess it's worth being clear the difference between a near Earth asteroid and a main belt asteroid. When people think of asteroids, <laughs> two hundred million miles, right? When people think of asteroids, they think of the asteroid belt, right? This is not really what we're talking. No, about. No, asteroid belt. If you it's, if you take it's the very far away, yeah. If you take it's the distance between Mars and Jupiter, if you were to take the distance between Earth and the Sun, and then multiply that by two point five, that's the distance between Earth and the asteroid belt. Yeah, these things are uh, too far away in the near future to really be useful for us. So what we're talking about are. Um, near-Earth asteroids that orbit the sun in a way that every now and then brings them very close to Earth. Relatively speaking, yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, the, you know, maybe far off in the future when we develop propulsion systems that are incredibly fast, we might explore the or, – or we've actually explored beyond Mars at that point. Um, we might be using asteroids in the asteroid belt for mining purposes, but until that point, it's really, I mean, it would take yeah. years for us to get back and forth effectively. Yeah, th- that could be a, a great thing in the far future when you're talking about sort of a mastery of the inner solar system, a sort of full full colonization future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, in, in the near term, there's yeah. really no advantage to that. Especially until we've got a way of making fuel in space so that we don't have to ship fuel into space, which... Is yeah. mind-bogglingly not, slow, not very efficient. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've kind of explored it. We've we've talked about how we've got companies that are actually moving on this, which is kind of cool. It's turning science fiction into science fact. Whether or not it's successful is something that we still have to wait and see. But it's it's certainly I, I'm sure that we will be doing it in the future. Whether or not it's through the same process that's outlined in these companies' approaches or something entirely different remains to be seen. But I have no doubt that we will be attempting and successful in those attempts to harness the resources of these asteroids for our own use and possibly uh, in a way that isn't terrifying. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Well, one way to feel good about it is that I would just say from a lot of the people that I like to read, a lot of astronomy buffs and, and people who are big on space exploration, a lot of them tend to be skeptical people. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and they are often quick to, to poo-poo the more fanciful space exploration ideas. But a lot of people seem to have good feelings about this. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that comes from the fact that it's, um, that there is a strong financial incentive behind it. And it does offer a sort of, uh, comprehensive plan that you can fully integrate into the future of space exploration. Mm-hmm. And there are clear steps that people are taking. I, th- I think that both of these companies' outlines are are great ideas. Yeah, and it's it's nice that they have, at least for the first few phases, a specific outline of what they want to achieve and how they want to achieve it. Uh, it's It certainly is the sort of thing that is necessary if you're going to go forward with a a commercial approach to this and not, you know, not a, a government funded science, just purely science based, uh, uh, endeavor, right? So we'll see how it turns out. We will be following this because I mean, it's, it's cool stuff. So we're excited to see what happens. And, uh, guys, if you have any suggestions for future topics of forward thinking, I recommend you get in touch with us and tell us because we won't know otherwise. One way you can do that is by sending email. Our address is fwthinking at discovery.com or go to fwthinking.com. That's where we have the blogs, podcasts, videos, etc. That's way, that's another way you can get in touch with us. Uh, there's a lot of stuff there that's really fascinating. I highly recommend it. Check it out and we will talk to you again really soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe Ventilation System exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe Ventilation System. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done.
This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.